Morning. Today's reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 19 through 30. For some days Saul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him off to Tarsus. Thank you, Jay Sproul. Jay has been a friend for a long time, and I, and I have to be careful because Pastor Tom's asking me to not comment on everybody who volunteers to come up front, because he's like, I'm going to start running out of people who are willing to do this if they know that you're going to follow it up with something, but I've known Jay forever, so just give me one more. Not only is Jay married to a woman who has changed many of our lives immensely, Dory, who is our admin assistant here at Faith. Uh, but Jay himself is just a, a really kind-hearted and helpful individual, and he's been a friend of mine for a long time. And if you want to know what it's like to see the world through an incredible artist's perspective and everything, just have a conversation with Jay. He's very gifted in that arena. So he's been a great help to us all the years of doing like VBS and decoration and all those kind. Of, I, I told you I could go on forever about him. Um, but this morning, as you already heard in presentation, uh, we are in the month of July and a little bit into August. We are getting into the routine now of each year, taking the time to emphasize what our going out looks like as a church. Um, what opportunities do we have in our own backyard and what opportunities do we have to serve the needs and the, uh, the gospel need of the people around the world? And so throughout the weeks, the coming weeks, you'll hear presentations from the people that, that belong to us, like this morning with, with both Steve and Jeremy. And then you'll hear from missionaries that are coming from other parts of the world that we support and send out. And so all of it is to be in the stew, if you will, of how we are inspired and moved to uh, to move out and to take part in the gospel movement that is happening under the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jeremy would also like me to mention... Um, 
that uh, that the shoe drop off, it's probably understood already by now, but to just start bringing those here to the church and we'll get some communication as to like where it'll be located and stuff. But for now, just bring shoes. We'll put them anywhere right now and we'll make sure they get distributed. And I'd also like to say, Taylor Bacon, how does it feel to have survived a Jeremy Jones announcement with no digs and no jokes towards you? Pretty impressive, right? He's growing, isn't he? I feel like Taylor's t-shirt should always say, I did not come here to be made sport of. So, All right. Uh, Newton's first law of motion states that every object will remain at rest or in uniform motion in a straight line unless compelled to change its state by the action of an external force. We've been witnessing what Luke has recorded for us in the book of Acts as the complete and total overhaul of one individual named Saul. And he was moved, but I don't think he was just compelled by an external force. The things that happened to him in the story that we studied just a couple weeks ago were, were of an external nature, but they had an internal transformation impact on Saul. And I think that's uh, fitting to how Luke seems to have recorded the history of the church. You might remember from the outset of the book that he's recording all these things for a man named Theophilus. He says, here's a written account of testimony of the things that took place at the birth of what we now refer to as the church of Jesus Christ. And he's recording for us things on such a radically personal, heart-transformative level that we can't just chalk this up to some kind of corporate movement or the advancement of an idea. We've seen plenty of those come and go in our society, and they have a tendency to fizzle out. You think about any of the movements that you've witnessed in our world or in our country over the last couple of decades, and you think how many of those have had lasting power, no matter how compelling they sounded uh, at first, no matter how easy of an entry point they might have provided, the reality is, is without a total transformation of the inward person, all of these external movements and things fade away. They give way due to convenience, or they chicken out due to threat, or whatever the case may be. What, what Luke is recording for us here is that God was, was doing a movement as the Holy Spirit literally blew in through the people, that it wasn't just a, we saw this in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit arrived, it says like the sound of like a mighty rushing wind, the Holy Spirit came, but he didn't just blow to, to knock the shutters of our houses and things, he blew through the cavern of our souls and gave us everlasting life. And as we stated a couple weeks ago, Saul's conversion is perhaps the most radical and transformational event in the history of the church, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the promised comforter. But Paul, who was then named Saul, was compelled by more than just this massive external force. He was changed and rescued from within. And it's my prayer, it's my hope this morning as we spend a little bit of time in the, uh, going forward in Acts chapter 9 is that we'll see that from Saul's unique example, we are going to receive a challenge today to examine our own stories of transformation. In other words, how different is your life since you've determined to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior? 
Or maybe some of you are like me and you've been doing this for a long, long time and you go, I remember when it used to matter. I remember I used to, quote unquote, feel connected to the, the, um, the life of Jesus Christ or whatever it may be. But there's a, there's a, there's an evaluation that we need to take, uh, that we need to have this morning of how different is my life based on the impact of Jesus Christ. What's clear from Saul's story is that things are going to change and things should change. And so this morning, we'll look at how things change in how we approach our lifestyles or what our our value systems adjust to the things that we start finding more important than others. And there'll be a tremendous amount of cost and and, and, and sort of a, a warning aspect of those first two things. But it also comes with incredible benefits that we'll also see from our story this morning. So getting back into, or at least revisiting the text of which we, uh, we just heard, uh, read for us, the first thing I'd like to point out here is that the call of Jesus radically alters our lifestyle. And this is more than, than mere behavior change. We've had enough of that thrust on us in, in religion or organizations or things like that, 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 that demand that we conform to a particular standard. And so we get out there and we try hard. We try to take on the vestiges of all the things that are, are, are inherent in those movements or in those ideas. And we play the part for a while only to find that it fizzles out or it becomes inconvenient or costly. Paul, the apostle, after his conversion and his maturity and his faith in Christ, later would tell the Corinthian church, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a complete and new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Paul is remembering, as he was referred to as Saul, that things in my life switched like that. When Jesus radically intervened, that the, the Saul that I was, all that I had chalked up to be important in my life, all the things that I thought I needed to accomplish, the things I even thought I was doing for God, all of that was wiped away in a moment, like the flip of a switch, when Jesus shined his light on me and said, Saul, Saul, what are you doing? And he said, who are you, Lord? And God responds with, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And in that instant... Everything changed for him. So we catch up in chapter 9 where we're saying, well, what took place and how did he start to engage and how did his life begin to change? And in verse 20, it says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he's the son of God. And, and you can imagine somebody who did not believe this moments before is saying this with the expression of bewilderment and surprise, but with all of the passion that he was using to chase down and hunt Christians and kill them, thinking he was doing God a favor. Now he was saying, you need to hear what I'm saying here now. He is the son of God. Verse 22 says that he was increasing all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I, I would venture to say that even just the change in Paul's face, uh, face and his, his affect and his actions and all that was proof enough that something radical must have taken place and that there's truth behind what he's saying. But he, he continued in typical Saul fashion of making his case and proving his argument 
growing in strength. This is what happens when Jesus arrests us, when we now have a new allegiance to the Lordship of Christ. We become proclaimers rather than persecutors. As hard as Paul was running at the decimation of the church with all of his energy and his ambition, the moment that Jesus intervened with him, he was running with that same zeal and speed to the side of Jesus Christ. He's proclaiming he's the son of God, proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. And you can imagine with all of Paul's deep study, I mean, he knew his Old Testament. Wasn't the Old Testament to him when he knew it. It was the Old Testament to us, but he knew his Bible. And as Jesus is revealing himself and he starts thinking, how did I get it wrong? How did I miss the promised Messiah? How did I not see that it would be him? Now, all of that knowledge was starting to be reinterpreted. New light was shining on all that he could see in the scriptures. This had to have been an absolutely mind-blowing encounter. His deep knowledge, his intense study was now being made alive because it had a person in the center of it. And that person was Jesus Christ. Paul is now as a good soldier and as one who's uh, been trained to take orders and follow the lead of powerful mentors is now giving his allegiance to the Lord of Lords, to the King of Kings, because he's proven no other king I've ever bowed to, no other mentor I've ever served, no other educator I've ever learned from came back from the dead. And yet Jesus has done it all. That will reorient who you answer to awfully quick. And I think this is part of what we as American Christians need to really kind of slow down and let that um, um, uh, ruminate in our hearts a little bit here is that we're not used to having to answer to any particular authorities until there's there's something in it for us. You know, I, I, I don't want to submit to a government until for sure they're going to help me get something out of life that I need. Or I'm only going to do what my boss says if, if my job's threatened and that sort of thing. That we have a tendency to wait until we're pushed to the brink of submission and obedience the more that cultures go on. And Saul here is demonstrating for us. He goes, no, my allegiance was to God. I thought I was serving God. But when it was proven to me that in order to serve God, I needed to believe in his son whom he had sent, then all my allegiance came to Jesus. When, When we know who we answer to, we could say it a different way, then it clarifies for us what we're going to do next, what our actions, what our behaviors are going to be. Now, I think it's important that we start with allegiance before behavior because many of you are, uh, could, could attest to the same thing I, I um, experienced a lot, that behaviors were spelled out very easily and regularly for me. If you want to impress God, they didn't say it this way, but if you want to do things God's happy with, you got to do these things. But my allegiance, who I was trying to impress, who I was doing it for, could have been all over the map, depending on the audience that I wanted approval from. When my allegiance is to follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, then the duties of how to do it becomes a thing of the heart, not a thing of external compulsion. But Saul's behaviors, his actions were changing. Verse 21, it was noticeable. All who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? So we knew that he was actively persecuting Christians. Now he's not doing that. 
And you imagine them asking this question from an amazement standpoint as well. You know, it's not so much, ah, we don't really believe this. That's not what they're saying here in this moment. These people are saying, can you believe what we're witnessing? We were freaking out that this guy was coming to town. We were starting to lock our doors and bar our windows because we knew once he found out we were Christians, we were done for. Is this really the same person? Is he really saying what we think he's saying? We thought he came here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests, verse 21 says. They were amazed. That word amazed is where we also get the word ecstatic. And I was thinking about what does ecstatic mean? It's it's being thrilled. It's being elated with something. But we know from the text that there's a mixture of disbelief that goes with it. It's one thing to be all whipped up in a frenzy and be amazed at something. But when your jaw is dropping at the same time going, how does this even happen? It's an incredible experience. This is what they're seeing in the life of Saul. When you and I see that our allegiance belongs to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it starts to change the way that we act in all the settings and surroundings we find ourselves in. Yes, it's okay for a Christian to be called to the higher standard of when I go into my family environment that I am to be a different person because of what Jesus has done, how he's transformed my heart, that my marriage doesn't belong to me or my family or my children don't belong to me. In that sense, I'm a steward of these relationships that God has entrusted to me. So I'm not approaching them from my my typical fleshly selfish standpoint of what do I get out of this arrangement? which if we're being honest, trips us up all week, doesn't it? The fights and the squabbles and the frustrations and the things we have, if we just took a step back and say, how much of this living for my own kingdom caused this kind of frustration in my life right now? How much of me demanding or expecting that others would serve my needs and purposes is causing this kind of pain in my life right now? When Jesus is my king and my Lord, I'm doing the things that serve his people better because I'm his subject. I go into my job and instead of behaving like anybody else who only has this sliver of their life before them and all that they can get in this period of time is all that they get their worth from and they can build their their um, their futures with and pay off their mortgages and get the toys and all those kinds of things. I don't appro- I don't approach my work that way that doesn't have that kind of value or meaning to me. Because that's not my king. My king isn't getting all I can get for the now. My king is telling me that my work counts for eternity, that I can approach it as an act of worship, that I can give the Lord back something by doing the thing that I do, even to earn my living. As I live for his kingdom, I start to realize that even if my job doesn't have this kind of naturally impactful thing on my world, maybe it is somewhat mundane, or maybe sometimes I have to take a step back and go, what in the world am I really accomplishing here? That as I see that it all belongs to Jesus, I surrender it to him and I find my purpose in worshiping through my diligence, through my faithfulness to it. I don't get caught up in all the conversations of the people that have dead ends in front of them who have no hope for anything to come after this life. Instead, I speak light and and life into those circumstances. How I approach my freedoms and my liberties and how I spend my money, how I do so many things in my life changes radically because I am not the Lord of my life. 
Fortunately, the one who is loves me enough to still allow me to grab some peace and purpose and enjoyment from all the things I give myself to. Many of you will know, though, that even though you're making these changes and you're walking into these circumstances like your family, your work, or how you spend your money with a higher purpose, you would expect everyone to just roll the carpet out and say, this is amazing, finally, somebody that is positive. But isn't it interesting that usually you get met with a lot of negative reaction? That it sours the experience? And so there's a cost element to this. Yes, my purpose has been elevated, but instantly the people around me feel threatened by my change. I experienced this to a dramatic, life-altering level when I uh, decided to follow Christ. I take you back to a young Brent Small at the age of nine in the third grade when the absolute love of my life where our futures were already planned out. Trina Ayotte. If you're listening, Trina, I forgive you. Things have worked out pretty well for me since, so you've got no. I remember her shouting what seemed like this wave of wheat and long grass across the field in this most romantic of ways where our our disconnection was starting to prove itself obvious. And she walks away and she yells back at me, you've changed. And and, and in my nine-year-old self, I'm yelling, Because I'm a Christian, I don't know what it is, but you've changed. It's because I'm a Christian. And it didn't work. She kept on walking. It was at that moment that I said, Jesus, this is a call to surrender. If that's the uh, level of suffering in my life, then I'd say I've had a pretty good life. But I look back and I laugh at that because at the time in my little world, I didn't know what a girlfriend was. She didn't know what a boyfriend was or anything. But, you know, kids on school grounds and stuff, you say these things. But in the, it just occurred to me that it's like not everyone's going to be okay with your newfound energy to follow Jesus. And I'm telling you, I was obnoxious. I was that kid who instantly turned into the Sunday school nerd. I don't know why at nine this stuff mattered to me and it appeared to me so clearly because I know as kids we have a high capacity for belief. But I geeked out on this pretty quick. So she was, she reckoned, she's probably a pretty astute person. Like, I can see where this is going. It's going to have me, you know, living in the mission field here pretty soon or something like that. But, but this is the realization is that, that as you follow Christ and you start to make changes in your life, that you will pay costs. And many of you are paying much more severe costs for your testimony of faith, for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, than just the loss of some schoolyard crush. So the call of Jesus alters our lifestyles, but it also impacts our value system. What we start to see as important and needed and necessary, worth our investment, worth our attention, starts to change, and it's a radical transformation. And I I know what we're saying with Paul here is that it was like a flip of a switch, but please don't remember this. We said this a couple weeks ago. I try to use the word unique whenever I talk about Saul's conversion because Saul was about to be such an incredibly unique instrument for the birth of the church and the mission work that Jesus had laid out for him that all of his experiences were going to be the kind of thing that most of us won't relate to. 
So we're not doing a one-to-one comparison that if God's really at work in your life, you'll go through everything that Saul went through. That's not the point of the conversation. But it is still a pattern and a, and a level of, of principle that we see taking place in his life. And so even though it happened like a flip of a switch for him, we still see that the distinction in his value system is something that we need to see as well. You remember when we were looking in Philippians 3 and we talked about his incredible resume of human accomplishment and, and pedigree and all the things that one could boast about on this earth. Paul, in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way, but to set up the point that this doesn't really matter to him anymore in his value system, he lays out a litany of things that we would love to be able to bro- boast about in our own context. And we kind of look at it as, oh, maybe Paul's just humble bragging here. Like, oh, I used to do this. And you know, you've been around those situations before where somebody, it's like, they never talk about themselves. And I'm like, yeah, but somehow you know everything they do. They sneak it in. They find a way to be like, oh, I was over here with this or I know this person or something like that. We would look at Philippians 3 and that list that Paul's given is maybe that's what he's doing. But when we see how radically different his life was, we come to Philippians 3.8 and he says, no, 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 indeed. I mean, you need to mark this down. You need to trust me when I say I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's for his sake. He is my Lord. He is the one I answer to. He's the he's my value system. It's for his sake. I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We just think that that's something someone's supposed to say when they want to appear humble. But probably secretly late at night, he's like, I used to be somebody. Man, I used to have a plan. I used to have all the uh, popularity that one could ask for and all these kinds of things. And But no, he's saying, you've got to trust me. It matters nothing to me anymore. And this starts to speak to our giving in to temptations and the fact that we always seem to want to do something. Another uh, principle that Paul really keyed on uh, in Romans when he says, the things I want to do, I don't seem to be able to do as well. The things I don't want to do, they keep dragging me in or they, they make for me such an, a, a compelling case that I want to give in. Why is that? Why do we so often give in to temptations? Why do we so often lose sight of what uh, is valuable? Is it because, well, you know, some people would say, I don't know, I just can't do that whole straight and narrow thing. My desires for other things are too strong or my taste buds are, are too advanced for such and such a thing. Or we often throw the phrase around the heart wants what the heart wants. Can't control everything you feel. C.S. Lewis had an interesting take on this, a pretty famous quote of his by now. He says, indeed, if we can consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures. We're fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too easily pleased. Jesus didn't come and rescue our worlds just to say, stop doing that, start doing this. He came to change our desires. That's why many of us believe that people misquote that 
proverb, and some of you will notice like one of your favorite verses, and I always can't remember if it's like three, five, and six, or one of those, but it's, you know, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, and we often like to say, hey, that's not necessarily saying do what God wants, and he'll just fill it, fill your dump truck full of all the things that you want. That instead, what it is, is you delight yourself in the Lord, and he alters the desires of your heart. He gives you desires that are pleasing to him. I think this is what C.S. Lewis is getting at in this quote. Encountering the supreme worth of Jesus immediately dulls all other offers. When we change our value system, we start to look at all of the things in our life differently, even the threats that come our way. And we have to move a little bit quickly through this point here. But, but Paul is noticing here that he's got new enemies The people that had his back a second ago were now the ones that are plotting to kill him. There's a statement in our text, you may remember, it said, and after many days, it's just a quick statement that Luke makes. And so in the spirit of Luke glossing over a a pretty significant thing, I'm going to try to give it just a little bit of attention so that you know. When Luke says, and many days later, he's actually referring to a period of, of three years. So Saul is rescued, he's transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, he starts committing his way to the Lord, and then and then God tucks Saul away, puts him off to the side for three years. He tells us this in Galatians 1, I'm actually not going to turn there, we don't need to put that up on the screen just for time's sake. But God tucks Saul away in three years of relative obscurity and training, and he's doing some mission work, if you will. And many have speculated that he's actually getting his education directly from the the mouth and the mind of Jesus. But he's in what I like to refer to as an incubation period. He's that that new little Christian and he needs some help along the way. So God says, I'm going to put you in the incubator and I'll make sure you get all the nutrients and the heat and all the things that are going to help you to grow. And interestingly, he sends him to Arabia, which isn't the peninsula we would think of now, but it's really the Sinai wilderness. So it brings him to the location of the same Mount Sinai where Moses receives the law to give to the people. And in the same location that Moses is receiving the law, Paul is getting his education on the grace of God, bringing those two worlds together, that the law would point to the freedom that God would send, the rescue that he would send. And here Saul is a direct recipient of that grace, and he's being educated in its ways. But nonetheless, Saul finds himself with a new host of enemies. And you wonder if in those three years that he was tucked away, That Jesus said to him, just like he said to the disciples in John 15, when Saul knew that those enemies were coming, if the world hates you, you need to know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you were doing what they wanted to do, if you weren't rocking their boat, they would love you. They would celebrate you. It would be just like you were of their own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world sees you as a threat and a discomfort, so they hate you because you represent me. Your commitment or who you swear allegiance to is often revealed by the kind of enemies you make. Paul is receiving new enemies, which is a great little gift, a little bonus along the way. And he's also finding himself in new low points. 
And I say that sort of like as a dad joke because it's a pun based on what the text tells us. They were lowering him down in a basket. They probably had some connection in his disciples. They had one of those houses on the outside wall of the city. And as they were hearing of the threats to kill him, they said, hey, we'll get you out the window. And so they put him in the essentially the equivalent of the trash barrel. They said, get in the Rubbermaid and we'll lower you down. The mighty hunter warrior... The great Saul of Tarsus immediately sees that one of the benefits, one of the great perks to being a follower of Jesus is you might find yourself hiding in a trash barrel trying to escape with your life. Good times. No high horses, no flowing robes. This wasn't a bragging point for Paul in 2 Corinthians 11. He references it as one one of the shining examples of his weakness. Paul was coming to understand that God will dismantle your pride, what we find in our self-security and our strength. He will dismantle your pride until the only strength you have left is from him. So something changes in your life when you follow Christ. There is a distinction. We don't just add a little Jesus to the world we already like. He dismantles things. He reduces things. He shifts our values. And our allegiances. But it's not all negative. And those things aren't negative. If you look at their eternal reward and payoff. There's also some beauty and some immediate benefit to be found in surrendering to Christ. As we see popping up here in the example of Barnabas. Because the call of Jesus provides a radical replacement of your friends and your family. Saul is seeing that. If he was just going through this alone, he'd be the most miserable person on the, on the, in the world. But instead, he's discovered he's got new advocates. He's got the same people that he wanted to, to arrest and have killed might be the ones protecting him and plotting for his safety. The text tells us that he was tempted to join. He, I mean, I'm sorry, not tempted. He attempted to join, but they would not believe... Now, this is after that statement comes after three years of being tucked away in the Sinai wilderness. And that's surprising to us. We're like, well, after three years, wouldn't they have heard this guy's the real thing? And never underestimate the human mind's capacity to come up with conspiracy theory. And this is before social media and fake news and all these other kinds of things that that as Saul gets tucked away, could not those first century uh, followers of Christ still think, "I I think it's a strategy. I think it's a plot. He's going away and he's hiding in obscurity for three years because he's he's coming up with fake disciples. He's going to infiltrate us from within. And just as soon as we let our guard down, he's going to arrest us. Who knows what was going through their mind, but they weren't buying it. And we don't even know why they weren't hearing that he was doing great things and that the Lord was using him. Needless to say, after three years of serving the Lord, of feeling somewhat tucked away and isolated, he thinks, these brothers are going to welcome me back. And they're like, "Ah, leave them at the door. We're not interested. Saul was broken and the people were fearful. We saw in the story of Ananias how we can give in to the fear of man rather than trust the promises of God or to see God's hand at work because we think that person, what they can do to me or how they can hold me back or hurt me is more important than the plan of God. So two words come into the story that change all of that. But Barnabas. 
We remember Barnabas from chapter 4 because he was referred to as the son of encouragement. If you can't, if you can't bank on the son of encouragement coming through for you, then what hope do any of us have? Barnabas was a man of probably considerable needs, had some resources, and while everyone was, was donating to the church and, and, and seeing the movement happen and everything, he sold a field that he had and he came and wanted to lead by example so that others would follow. People loved Barnabas. He was respected. His, his name probably carried weight. His words probably carried weight. And yet he used it at this most opportune time to get Saul in, uh, invited to the inner, inner uh, circle so that he could continue doing the work of Jesus. Not easy to do. Not easy to convince people who have their mindset that what's actually going on might actually be the reality. My mind goes back to a scene in uh, Narnia in the first movie, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, of uh, um, uh, the older siblings. There's four siblings, and the older three all think the youngest one has lost her mind because she claims that she found her way into a wardrobe, a giant closet, and there was a great, huge winter wonderland on the back of it that opened up in a completely different world, and there's characters running around with deer legs that are human and all these kinds of things. And of course, they're thinking, there's no way this is reality. Our sister has lost her mind or she's caught up in some child's fantasy. And so there's a surprising advocate that the youngest sister, Lucy, has when the siblings try to call her out with her insanity. So I brought the clip. Let's watch because we need a little entertainment this morning of how this happens. seem to have upset the delicate internal balance of my housekeeper. We're very sorry, sir. It won't happen again. It's our sister, sir. Lucy. The weeping girl. Yes, sir. She's upset. Hence the weeping. It's nothing. We can handle it. Oh, I can see that. She thinks she's found a magical land. In the upstairs wardrobe. What did you say? Um, the wardrobe upstairs. Lucy thinks she's found a forest inside. She won't stop going on about it. What was it like? Like talking to a lunatic. No, 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 not her, the forest. You're not saying you believe her. You don't? Well, of course not. I mean, logically, it's impossible. What do they teach in schools these days? Edmund said they were only pretending. And he's usually the more truthful one, is he? No. This would be the first time. Well, if she's not mad and she's not lying, then logically, you must assume she's telling the truth. You're saying that we should just believe her? She's your sister, isn't she? You're a family. You might just try acting like one. That little statement at the end is incredibly profound. Paul is finding himself isolated, can't seem to convince anybody that his change of heart is genuine. Those that should trust that these kinds of things happen, those that should believe that these radical transformations take place, and he seems like he's screaming to a, an audience that can't hear him, and they're like, we're not interested. 
Saul is feeling the fact that God has more for me to do and I've got to move forward with this mission and this church is holding me back because they won't believe. Barnabas steps forward and says, you're a family, aren't you? You better start acting like one. When you start getting advocates like that in your life and you start finding the, the camaraderie, if you will, by other people who believe the same crazy things that you dare to believe, that Jesus can actually change a heart, that, that our orientations, our lives, our actions, our allegiances can be radically altered. When you start finding a fellowship of people that walk in those same circumstances, you've just found the closest and strongest family you could ever hope to have. Perhaps you've never had anyone stand up for you like that. Well, all of these things are just pictures of what Jesus brings. Barnabas is giving us incredible image in the gospel. We even saw it in the crucifixion of Stephen as he looked up into the sky and saw, he said, I see Jesus as at the right hand of the father, welcoming me home. We said that because Jesus was standing at the right hand of the father, he was his advocate, like in a legal setting saying, Stephen is innocent because of my blood. No matter the accusations of the enemy, this person's a, uh, you know, wayward or they're weak or they're any of those sorts of things. Jesus stands in our advocacy. He stands on the right side of the father to say, because they believe in me, they're fine and they're part of my family. The way of the cross not only demands change, like some kind of external requirement, so we all get lockstep into a religious lifestyle. It doesn't just re- demand it from the outside. It provides that change from the inside and it becomes an evidence in our life that we can't argue with. Jesus as Lord alters our behaviors because we've encountered his power. We surrender to his, his omnipotence and we say, there's no way I can fight against him. Nobody else has come back from the dead. That's what Saul had to come to. But Jesus as savior, the one who rescues your soul from your sins personally alters our values because we've encountered his beauty. The way of the cross is a difficult one. It's a distinct one. It isn't just do whatever the culture does and add a little Jesus to it so that we can say we got some religion this week or I like a worship song here and there or I I have this uh, scripture cross-stitched on a pillow that it is a difficult, radically altering life that we are called to, but it is not lonely. Christ will take the time to educate us in the wilderness of our preparation, but he'll also provide a family a church around us to walk through the journey together. This is a complete life that we get to live, but it is radically different than the one we were born with. So let's stand, let's pray. Let's be thankful for all that God does. Lord, I want to thank you, Father, for uh, just moving through our time this morning in such profound ways. You've called your people to tasks, but you don't do it in in a merely external way, Lord. Because we have your life living in us, we have the privilege and the opportunity to reflect you. We get to reflect you to the lost world around us. We get to reflect you to the families that we love and serve. We get to reflect you to the bosses and the workers and the colleagues that we spend our days around. So, Lord, call our allegiance to something higher than just the whims and wishes of our flesh and all of these things. Lord, help us to surrender to you, our loving Lord and Savior. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.